almost walked away without giving the announcements for today, which would have been a big bummer because I'm super excited about some stuff going on around here. First of all, on Saturday, May 20th, that's coming in a few weeks, um, Pastor Jason will be hosting a class called the Partnership Class. And that is just a place for you to come and hear about Brookview. And if you call this your church home and you want to get a little bit more involved and know a little bit more of the details of what goes on around here and how you can partner with us, that's why we call it that, and we would love to have you come to that class. It's from 9 o'clock in the morning until 1 in the afternoon on that day. And the way that you sign up is either on that Connect card that is on your seat or for those of you that are watching at home, you can fill out your online communication card and let us know if you're able to attend to that. And Jason will reach out to you. The second thing is it's been a while since we had a brunch. Am I right? Yeah. We love being able to gather around tables, and that is just something newer that we've done out of COVID and innovated a little bit. Um, and we are merging two things together. And so traditionally in the spring, like three times a year, we like to have something called Ignite. And that is basically Brookview's family meeting, where we just talk like family about the real stuff that goes on around here. Um, you get kind of a peek behind the curtain. And it's also a way for us to just share stories and be known a little bit and get to know each other. And so we're going to do Ignite as part of our Sunday morning service while we're all sitting around tables here with um, food. I mean, does it get any better than that? I'm getting some yeses, so that's good. But I need your help. We need your help. Um, we are looking for people who might be willing to bring in a casserole. As many of you know, it's like the same one that we keep doing, and we make little tweaks along the way. But it's delicious, and it's filling, and it's an easy recipe, and we all do the same one. That way it's not like, oh, you got table number two. <laughs> That was gross. No, we're all doing the same thing. You don't have to feel bad about it. It's just everybody comes. So um, we won't. We don't even have to talk about it if it's raw. I'm kidding. Probably not going to eat it if it's raw. Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. Go back. What else did I need? Oh, yeah, a coffee team. You guys, that is one innovation. I have found that every time that we have this, I'm like standing down at the coffee pots and I can't get it to go fast enough. And so I'm just looking for a couple people that can help make coffee in the morning and probably be able to do it better <laughs> than I would. Although I heard my coffee's decent. I don't even know what I'm doing, but I can help you with that. There are instructions for it. And um, so we're just looking for somebody because I will probably need to be a little bit more hands-on with that um, family meeting. So then we need help with setup and we need help with teardown because it takes a lot of work to get all the tables and tablecloths. And so if you can do that, fill out your connect card on your seat or for those of you that are watching at, online or if you just forget to fill it out and you want to do it later in the week, you can go online to brookviewchurch.com and there is a connect card there if you click on the contact us portion of that. That is all that I have. Let's do the next thing.
There we go. Sorry about that. Isn't that more pleasing? Mm, mm. So you guys, last weekend, our daughter, Brooklyn, who's 16, played in a basketball tournament down in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was kind of cool because my dad, who's 80 years old, lives in Sacramento. And so he was able to make the drive to see her play one game. And this was like super special because we haven't seen, seen him in four years. And I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But he got to the gym and he called me and he said, uh, how does Brooklyn wear her hair these days? <laughs> he's like, she's 16. I haven't seen her since she was 12. And so he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find her. And I said, okay, Dad, she's going to be the one with your last name on the back of her jersey. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. So then he texted me, he's like, got her, got her. And I'm like, sweet. Um, so it was just really sweet. Uh, we haven't seen my dad since a year before COVID, about a year before COVID, because his wife, my stepmom, um, had Alzheimer's and she passed away in March. And so when COVID hit, they just holed up together in their home. They were both high risk for a bunch of different reasons. And so my dad was dead set on treating his wife with dignity and love as much as possible for as long as possible. And so he, he cared for her by himself at home. And he refused to, to put her into any kind of care until it was absolutely essential at the very, very end. So he cared for her 24-7 from home alone for over three years. Uh, you guys, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Notebook. And um, my dad was that guy. Like he is, to me, he's a, he's a hero. And he actually refused several different offers for me to come down and see him. Like I, like, I know that this is like crazy, but I'll fly, even if I can only see you for 20 minutes, I'll come down. But he just, he just kind of politely um, declined that over and over again. Um, and, and it was, th this whole thing has been kind of tough because he and I had all kinds of challenges in our relationship. They, my parents divorced when I was born and so I, I really didn't see him much um, as a kid. He moved to California, and he practiced law for his whole career. And then when I was 10, he married my stepmom, and she insisted that he re-engage with me. And so he did. So she was a big part of my dad and I's relationship coming back together. And over the years, th we then were able to build a pretty strong relationship. And he would come with his wife, my stepmom, and visit uh, a lot. Um, until COVID. And so we saw him about a year before the world changed, and they had a trip planned to come, and they had to cancel it. And again, I repeatedly offered to go to him, and he just politely declined again and again. So it was super special that he went to see Brooklyn's game. Um, and after years of isolation at home, um, you guys, a, a crowded, loud gym was kind of overwhelming. He called me on the phone, and I'm hearing balls bouncing and people screaming and sets of girls going, D-up, 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 D-up. My dad's like, hey, wait, what, how does Brooklyn wear her hair? And I'm like, what? He's like, what? It was, it, you know, and he, he went through all of that. Um, 
And so my stepmom's memorial will be coming soon, and, and you know, I'll get to see him then. And hopefully he is now saying with some regularity after that. But another challenge with, for us, like, over the years has been this, like, clash of worldviews. Some of you might know, <clears throat> I am a, a follower of Jesus, and I'm fairly devout. <laughs> uh, my dad, on the other hand, is what I would call a devout agnostic. So he's not a full-on atheist and, like, totally closed off to any possibilities, but he insists that whatever might be out there and whatever happens after death is unknowable. So his view seems to be that anyone claiming to know something is full of it. Only he wouldn't say full of it. So this puts he and I in a weird position sometimes because though I know he respects me and loves me deeply, to him, I am one of those guys that's full of it. And so yet, as we've talked through this, it's, I, I find his position, like for a logically-minded attorney, kind of unexpected. Because I, I can see an atheist who, who insists, listen, they just insist, like this is all a cosmic accident. And I can understand taking that position and just being devout in it, but being a devout agnostic is kind of an oxymoron, right? Agnostic means I'm not sure. But what happens is my dad then adds, I'm, what I am sure of, I'm sure that no one can be sure. And it's unexpected to me because logically, if, if you just think about it, if there might be a God, then if that God were to choose to reveal himself, couldn't somebody know? And, and of course, to, to be a Christian is, is to believe this very, this very thing, right? That, that God is, in fact, real and that he has, in fact, revealed himself. That he's revealed himself to many people in many ways with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and on and on and on. And that then he came to us to reveal himself to us in the flesh of Jesus. And so I get my dad's hesitation to buy into any kind of like religion. I get it. Because wicked people have used ideas about God to do unthinkable harm. And wicked people have used the name of Jesus to do unthinkable harm. So I, I get my dad's hesitation with buying into anything having to do with God. My dad's just really been turned off by the whole deal because there's been so much harm. I mean, humans are, are naturally power-hungry and greedy and controlling, and they have used anything they can get their hands on to promote themselves, including Jesus. And so the misery caused is, is immeasurable. And then, of course, you have, you have people with visions of, of, of a God that is angry and spiteful and distant. And while they, they, they grit their teeth and try to maintain belief in this God, they just live in this ongoing cycle of shame and, and fear. Or they down the road start to feel like, I'm slaying this thing, and they become arrogant, right, and judgmental. And then they encourage others to do the same, and it just it gets ugly. And then other people, they, they don't want all this to be a cosmic accident, so they're like, I, I, I can't go the route of atheism. Like, that's really empty. But they really don't want religion, so they sort of try a different approach. I was, well, I was listening to a pastor from another church, 
And he, he said he talked to a woman after a wedding that he had performed, and he talked about God a lot in, the, in this wedding. And so she came up to him afterwards, and she said, hey, I want you to know what I believe about God. And he was like, okay, great, that's great. Thank you. And, and so she said, yeah, yeah, well, I believe that God is in everything. She's like, just look around at the trees and the birds and the, and, and the oceans. And they were on a beach and stuff. So she's like, well, you know, and the fish and the waves and the shells and the rocks. And so he's, he's standing there going, okay. And so he politely said, that, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that with me. And she just said, yeah, well, I just want you to know what, what I believe. And she walked away. And he was standing there, and his, he said his first thought was, honestly, lady, it doesn't matter what you believe. God is who he is regardless of what you happen to think. None of us get to just make God into whatever we want him to be. It doesn't work like that. But here's the thing. If I'm honest, it's like, and, I, and I'm introspective, it's like, oh, God, I'm guilty of exactly what that lady is doing all the time. Like, even as a devout Christian, even as a professional Christian, God, I shape you all the time. I form you into the image of what it is that I want you to be. And I mean, if I'm, if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, don't I make God out to be more angry or at least more annoyed with other people's sins than my own? Yeah, like, don't I, don't I think he just kind of, whatever my shortcomings are, don't I think he kind of winks at those? Uh, but he takes other people's real seriously. And don't I make God out to be really excited about all the causes for justice that I'm excited about, but care less about the causes that I don't really care about? I mean, I can be guilty of making God into who I want him to be, too. The, the artist Henry Rousseau famously said, God created man in his image... And man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. <laughs> Scott McKnight is uh, a popular like, theologian, author, seminary professor, and he gives two surveys at the beginning of each one of his theology classes. In the first one, he asks the students to list their likes and dislikes, and then he issues them a second survey, and he asks the students to list God's likes and dislikes. And guess what he finds time and time and time again? The similarity between the two surveys is about 90%. In other words, his theology students believe that God is 90% just like them. So we need to ask an important question. What if our thoughts of God reflect more about ourselves than him? And what if that leads to all kinds of wrong assumptions about God? I mean, where, really, where do most of us get our ideas about what God is like? Well, I mean, you go to the Bible, okay, but also how we grew up, what we learned in our families or at school or from our friends or from our culture or from the media, right? I don't think any of us in this room today want to be wrong about God. Like whether you're, a, whether you're a committed follower of Jesus or you're a skeptic with a lot of questions. And by the way, if you're a skeptic with a lot of questions, we are so honored and we're so thankful that you're here asking them. And so whether it's confusion or curiosity or frustration with God, whatever it is you're wrestling through, 
we're really glad that you're here to do it. And I hope that you find this community of people to be gracious and patient with you along the way as you try to figure this out. But wherever you are with God, I bet you want to know what's like true about him. You, you don't want some made-up fiction. Like You want reality. And this is important because what we believe about God shapes who we are and how we're going to live day to day. I mean, you think about it. If, if God is like a harsh parent that's impossible to please, and then when he looks at you, he feels disgust and anger, and so he's making bad things happen in your life, and he's opposed to you, and he doesn't care about your suffering. Like, if that's your picture of God, it's going to affect you. But if God is relentlessly for you and always working for your greatest good, and if he delights in you and isn't distant but present with you like right here, right now, if he is closer to you than you can possibly realize and he adores you and is inviting you into unthinkable beauty with him, if that's your picture of God, like if he is the great healer, if he, if he touches lives every day, if he heals depression and loneliness and broken relationships and self-image, if he heals families and friendships and emotions, and on occasion, he even heals bodies, and one day he will heal, he'll heal all things because of his love, like if that's your picture of God, if he sees strength and courage and compassion and wisdom in you and he's committed to developing them until they're fully formed in you. And every time you grow and you mature and you take a little step forward, he celebrates you. Like a parent with a toddler taking their first step or a child riding a bike for the first time without training wheels. Like if that's what God is like. If God is powerful and good and compassionate and present, if he really is like that, and we come to know him as that, if he is knowable as a person and not just some impersonal force, if it's possible to have an authentic relationship with him, like if he is always knocking at our door, hoping we open it, if that's what God is like, if that is reality, it changes who we are and how we live. So I, I think of my dad, who on his own walked his wife through Alzheimer's who alone in his home watched his wife fade away day after day until she was gone. And I think, what if he could have invited his father into it all? I mean, my dad is a hero, but that had to be lonely, and that had to be, that had to be hard. What if he could have received comfort and strength and been absorbed by the presence of God in that season of his life. See, I, I want to know who God is so I can know who I really am and then better navigate this complicated modern world. See, if, if I'm going to bank on God being real, then I want to get as accurate of a picture of him as I can. I want to know him as he actually is, not as some figment of my imagination. And of course, God is bigger, right? He's bigger than any human can fully comprehend. There are mysteries to God and to this universe that we can't possibly understand. So this is also reality. If God is perfectly understandable to me, I've probably diminished God greatly. <coughs> like as Paul says, for now we only see in part. He writes, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall know face to face. Now I know in part, 
Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Right? There's a mystery to this whole thing. And yet, just because we can't know everything doesn't mean that we can't know anything. We can know whatever God chooses to make known to us. And as a follower of Jesus, I believe God has made himself known. And most of all, God has made himself known in Jesus. So that's what this series is, this series is, is all about. Um, in John's gospel, he structures the, the whole story, his whole book, around seven signs. Seven moments where Jesus demonstrates who he is and then explains it. For example, Jesus multiplies bread and fish to, to, to feed thousands, and then he says, I am the bread of life. Experience followed by explanation of who he is. So we're going to look at each one of these I am statements over the next weeks. And you guys, I think it's going to be extraordinary because I think that Jesus reveals to us so much. And what he does in these statements enable us to see reality. Like if we want to know what God is like, like this is, this is incredible stuff. So before we get to the I am statements of Jesus, I think we need to lay a foundation and get some context because Jesus didn't just show up on earth out of thin air. Like he was the culmination of what God had already been doing for a long, long time. And actually, the very first I am statement came well before Jesus. And Jesus, in what he was doing in the Gospel of John, is just riffing on something that was already known and there. So to launch this series, we're going to look at, today, today we're just going to look at the original I am statement. And we're going to start today with Moses, about 1,300 years before Jesus. Don't let that... 1,300 years before Jesus. Like, I'm no mathematician, but 1,300 years feels like a long time to me. So the, the story's going to pick up with the Israelites. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're, they're growing and growing as a people, which is all a part of God's design. Like, in the beginning, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, and he put mankind in the center of the garden, blessed them, and said, be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? Well, God's desire is to bless humanity, that we would flourish and be fruitful. And after the fall, God comes to Abram, and he reiterates this desire. He says, you are going to have a child who will become a nation, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and I will use them to bless the whole world. So centuries later, Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, and even as an enslaved people, they just keep growing and multiplying, which makes the Egyptians and their king, who? Pharaoh, very nervous. Okay, so the story goes like this, Exodus 1-7, it says, but, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the slave population of Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're growing so fast that it's making the Egyptians very uneasy. Why? Because they're worried that they could eventually rise up and overpower uh, Egypt. Their, their rate of growth is making them dangerous, but these slaves are building their cities, and they're, they're, they're f like feeding their economy, right? They're building the empire. So Pharaoh attempts to just kind of subdue the growth of the Israelites, and at first he makes them work harder. 
like produce more with less materials. And he thinks, okay, if I work them hard enough, they're not gonna, they're, they're gonna make less babies, right? Doesn't work. These people are committed. So, so, so he progresses to murder. He orders the midwives to kill all the newborn male infants. This doesn't work because the, the, the labor and delivery nurses don't comply, right? They refuse and they go back to Pharaoh saying, hey, you don't, you don't understand, like the Jewish women, they're not like Egyptians. Like they're crazy fast in delivery. Like they just pop out babies before we can get there. Classic excuse. <laughs> so finally, Pharaoh gives an order to everybody in the empire. He's like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Since the midwives aren't taking care of the problem, Every Egyptian in the kingdom is to track down every newborn Hebrew male baby and throw them in the Nile. And, and what's, what's crazy is that in every attempt to snuff out the Jewish people, you guys, Pharaoh is thwarted by women. By, so labor and delivery nurses, an immigrant mother, a big sister, the daughter of a king, like women in their normal, everyday spaces, doing God's work of justice. That is beautiful. Amen? Yes. And this, by the way, this is not a special instance. Like, all through the Bible, we read of women participating in God's kingdom right alongside of men. And this was God's intention from the very beginning. Men and women ruling and reigning together to do justice. And right in the middle of this hostile environment, Moses is born to a slave couple under oppression in a foreign land with an edict of death over him. I mean, you guys have seen the movie, right? Prince of Egypt? Oh, so good. So, so, so Moses' mother hides him as long as possible, right? And then in desperation puts him in a basket on the river, and I'm guessing she just prayed like crazy. And Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter, by Pharaoh's daughter and taken in. And she names him Moses, which means to draw out as she drew him out of the Nile River. Now, fascinating dynamic in this whole narrative is Moses' discovery of his own personal identity, right? There's a lot going on for this guy. He's a, he's a Hebrew, a Jew, an Israelite, right? He is the son of slaves, but he's raised as the grandson of Pharaoh in the palace. That's probably a little bit confusing. One day, after he'd grown up as a young man, he goes out into the streets. He leaves the place, the palace, to watch his own people laboring as slaves. Now try to imagine what's going on in him as he's watching this. And then he sees an Egyptian mercilessly beating one of the Hebrews. And he snaps, and he kills the Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand. And Pharaoh hears about it, and he orders that Moses be killed. So Moses flees Egypt to a distant rural town called Midian. And he gets married, and there he works for his father-in-law as a shepherd. So imagine, Moses is raised in the palace of cosmopolitan urban Egypt. It is the cultural center of the known world at the time, and he is educated and privileged. He's royalty. And then suddenly, in a, out of an act of standing up for justice, the justice of his people, he becomes an exile living as a shepherd in Cleon. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, Midian. So, like, 
Can you imagine the identity struggles he's facing? Like, how would that feel? Well, we get a glimpse into it when he, he names his son Gershom. Gershom means, I am a foreigner. So out of his pain and sadness and confusion, he labels his son forever. You guys, that is a lot of baggage to transfer onto your poor kid. <laughs> so it's interesting to ask, how, how does Moses see himself in this moment? Well, I think Moses is going through an identity crisis. I mean, if, if Moses lived today, he'd, he'd probably do the midlife thing. He'd probably max out his credit to purchase a, like a red convertible, right? I mean, he's going through an, an like all-out identity, midlife identity crisis. Like, am I a Hebrew or an Egyptian? Am I, am I royalty or a peasant? Am I an educated cosmopolitan prince or a rural shepherd? Who am I? So one day he's, he's out tending the sheep and he sees a bush that's on fire and it isn't burning up. And so he draws near to look at this strange thing. And then, okay, Exodus 3, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. This is a familiar story. Can you imagine what that would be like? And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And notice, like, notice how personal this encounter is. God calls Moses by name, but Moses falls down hiding his face. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go... I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. Like, that's amazing. God shares Moses' concern for justice for his people. And God says, I have come down to rescue them. And I'm sure initially Moses is like, yes, let's go. It's about time. Go, God. Right? And then God says, so now go. I'm sending you. And Moses is like, wait, what? Why me? Like, God, why don't you just do it? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Immediately, Moses is fixated on his own inadequacy for this task. Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And he has this long list of excuses for why he can't do it. And I just want to pause here and ask if you can relate to any part of that. Like, do you have any sense of a commissioning from God for something in your life? And do you, do you then look at it and go, well, but, okay, but this is way beyond my capacity. I'll tell you what, that's been my whole journey with God. I have felt that way again and again and again. I felt it at the very beginning when I was even contemplating becoming a Christian to start with. 
Because I looked at the whole thing and I thought, who am I to be a Christian? Because I got addictions and I got habits and I got brokenness. I am a mess. I got, and I can't, I can't seem to break this stuff. Like I'm actually trying to stop and I can't. Like I want to follow and, and live the way of Jesus, but I don't think I really ever could. Who am I? A few years later, I contemplated becoming a pastor, right? Who am I? Man, I have so much wreckage in my life. I didn't grow up in the church. All of this stuff is brand new to me. Who am I to become a pastor? I felt that way through difficult seasons of parenting, through difficult seasons of marriage. I felt that way trying to lead a church through freaking COVID. God, who am I? Who am I? Like, this is way beyond my capacity. And maybe some of you are, are feeling that, like in an intense way these days. Just like, who, who am I? And notice that God's response to Moses is basically, yeah, wrong question. God doesn't even dignify the question with a response. Moses asked, God, who am I? And verse 12, it says, and God said, I will be with you. In other words, it's not about you, Moses. It's about who I am. It's, Moses, I will be with you. It's, it isn't about your capacity. It's about who will be with you. And Moses, I will be with you. And this is the extraordinary thing with God. When he commissions you to something, it will exceed your capacity. So your past, your failures, your flaws, your experiences or lack of experiences, what you did last year, what you did last week, what you did last night, they all become secondary. What, what's primary is simply who is with you. Who, whose you are defines who you are. And Glenda, I love you. Now, this does not mean that you get to decide your own agenda for your own life and that God is giving you a no-fail guarantee to go out and be successful at whatever the heck you want to do. Sometimes I see, I see football players, you know, in a big game and they've got Philippians 4.13 on the, on the eye, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'm like, I'm not sure that throwing a touchdown is what he, exactly what he had in mind on that. I'm not sure that beating the guys on the other side that also follow Jesus is exactly what he had in mind on that. So it doesn't mean that you're, you somehow are given this carte blanche, like, no-fail guarantee. It means that if you belong to the God of heaven as a son or a daughter, if you are a child of the Most High God, if he is with you, if he is with us as a church, you guys, then we can do whatever he commissions us to do. God is giving Moses what he feels like is an impossible task, and so he just presses into God for more information. He presses God to reveal more. Verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And for the first time in the scriptures, God gives his personal name. A name so revered by Jewish people that they refused to speak it out loud. God said to Moses, you want to know who I am? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Yeah, so kind of helpful, <laughs> but also kind of not. Translated the, the best we can, the name, the name would be Yahweh. And it means I am or I will be. 
and it's now written out as Yahweh. But in the original Hebrew, they didn't use vowels. So originally, it was just the consonant, you know, consonants Y-H-W-H. So, but if you've, if you've read the, uh, the Bible very much, this is kind of a weird thing because you hear this. You're like, okay, so God's name is Yahweh. And then you read the Bible and you, you're like, hey, the name Yahweh actually doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Why? Well, it turns out that it was so sacred and so revered by the Jewish people that they refused to even say it. And so it was actually replaced in the Old Testament scriptures with another word that is now translated simply as Lord, like all caps. So when you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all caps, that means the original word was Yahweh. Okay, God's name, meaning I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And I was going to try to explain to you guys like how this happened historically, because I remember being in seminary and somebody explained it, and I was like, wow, that's cool and really complicated. So I was going to try to explain it to you, and thankfully, there's like a short Bible project video on it. Let's go. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the second key word here, Lord, written in all capital letters. This is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now, that Hebrew word Ehyeh means I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But it will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh and instead started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now this practice has been continued throughout the centuries and so later when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as Lord spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. And so they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. They took the four consonant letters of the divine name. These letters correspond to our English letters, Y-H-W-H. 
Then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai and combined these together to create an artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounced it, it would say Yahuwah, but no Israelite ever said Yahuwah. It's simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now, it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. And so they began to say it aloud and spell it in their writings. This is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah, it's a word many people still use today. But the main thing is, the word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or Master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of Lords. But behind all of these words, Yehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. Does that make sense why I didn't want to explain that? <laughs> okay, so bottom line, the takeaway is when you come across Lord in all caps when you're reading the Old Testament in the Bible, the name that should be, that, that's there is Yahweh, okay? So God says to Moses, go tell them, Yahweh sent me to you. He is the God who is and will be forever. His existence does not depend on anyone else. He is the uncreated one, the uncaused one. He is who he is, and he will be who he will be. Yahweh, okay, the personal name of God. So in this moment, Yahweh reveals his name to Moses, and, and yet, simultaneously, he's giving Moses clarity about Moses' own identity. It's almost as if God is saying, Moses, you want to know who I am? Well, I'll, I'll do more than that. I'll tell you who you are. You are Moses, which means to draw out. And Moses, you will draw out my people from Egypt. Moses, you are the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God, and I was with them, and now I will be with you. The most defining thing about you, Moses, is that I am with you. You guys, the truest, healthiest identity that anyone will, any of us will ever find comes from God. And this is a little bit of an aside. When I think about Gen Z right now, like those that are 25 and under, my heart breaks for so many of these kids trying to find their way. Like never have young people had so many options for identity thrown at them. Here's another side. Have you guys heard of, of, of people identifying as a furry? <laughs> you have? There's an option. You can't go, my truest identity is I'm a, I'm a furry. Look it up. Okay. <laughs> Never have young people had so many options for identity thrown at them. And this is, you guys, this is an, like an unprecedented experiment on a generation. And I, I, in all seriousness, I think we're going to see the full effects of this in the coming years. But the guiding principle of the entire experiment is that you can only find your identity within. You will discover who you are only by looking inward. And yet, 
for those of us that follow Jesus, Jesus would say the, the exact opposite. Jesus would say the way to truth and life to the full is to let God tell you who you are. And this is exactly what Jesus did, right? I mean, you look at his life. This is what made him so strong. And he taught his followers to do the same. And we're going to get to Jesus in just a second. But for now, back to Moses. Okay, fast forward in the story. Now to Exodus 34. So Moses does go with Yahweh. He confronts Pharaoh and he frees the Israelites. And it is awesome. But in Exodus 34, Moses is, is now in charge of leading these people through the wilderness to their new home. And on the journey, Moses grows even closer to God. Even though he experienced the burning bush and then God's power in Egypt, he's not satisfied, which is just epic. He just keeps pressing in. He just wants more of God. And how does God respond to it? Does God like, bro, you know me better than any person on the face of the earth. Be satisfied. No, he's, God is delighted by it. And can I just say, no, no matter how close to God that you've been in, like to this point in your life, no matter how close you've been, God wants you closer still. And he longs for it. He longs for it with you. He's overjoyed when you say, I want more, God. And Jesus said it like this. He said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So Moses says, God, I want more than your name. Show me your glory. In other words, show me all that you are, God. Don't hold back. And God is like, look, Moses, you can't handle all of me. But I love your heart. I love this request. So I'm going to show you all of me that you can handle. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. So who is Yahweh? Well, this is, you guys, this is Yahweh's self-disclosure statement to the world. And he starts with his name and then his character. And, and the order here matters because he leads with compassionate and gracious because they're dominant because they're the most important on the list. So let me just give you a quick word on all that Yahweh discloses about himself. What is Yahweh like? Well, first and foremost, Yahweh is compassionate. I mean, the Hebrew word here describes, like, it's inherent in the feeling that a parent has for a child. A deep-rooted love and affection. It's how a mother just naturally feels inclined toward her baby just wants the best for them and loves them beyond words. This is how Yahweh feels toward humanity, but even more important, it's how he feels about you. Okay, second, Yahweh is gracious. And this is, this is not so much a feeling, this is an action. I like, well, compassion is, is kind of more of a feeling. Gra gracious is an action word. It's, it's actively showing mercy or grace. It's, it's something you do. And in many places in the Bible, it has to do with help. This is often a word used in the Psalms in David's prayers for God's rescue. And it means that, that God is the one who responds. He's the one who helps he, like, actively. 
And this was a common request when you think about Jesus. It was a common way that people requested help from Jesus. I mean, you think of the blind man who called out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Yahweh is Yahweh's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Like, have you ever, have you ever had like an unexplained angry outburst? I have. Like just a sudden fit of rage, like, and you're just like, whoa, where did that come from? The point here is that God doesn't ever do that. God has a healthy, emotionally mature response to evil. God gets angry, but he is slow to anger. So remember, his, his baseline towards humanity is compassion and mercy. And he adds something about himself that he's abounding in love and faithfulness. So if you take that word faithfulness, it's something that we value in the context of marriage, right? And that's, that's actually the picture here. God, the picture is that God is like a husband who is faithful to his bride, to his beloved, to us, even when we aren't good to him or faithful to him. And this is, this is the whole story of the Bible, actually. Like, despite our continued unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to us. And he tells Moses, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is patient with us, like wooing us into a change of heart. But God also refuses to just wink at evil and allow it to go on forever. I mean, if someone is dead set on continuing in evil and resists asking God for forgiveness and refuses to have a change of heart, there will be justice. God will destroy evil and sin. And you guys, that is a really, really good thing. I mean, we all long for a world without school shootings, right, and without sex trafficking. And the promise is that one day there will, in fact, be such a world because one day God will fully bring justice once and for all. But right now, sin and wickedness are active and they're real and they have real consequences. Up to four generations, God tells Moses. And that part reads strangely to us. So let me be clear on this. Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious, doesn't punish innocent children for the sins of their parents. This is simply recognizing that there is a generational effect of sin. I mean, some of you, some of you are dealing with the issues of your parents who are dealing with the issues of their parents and so on, right? Like abuse, alcohol, mismanaged anger, the effects of that stuff can take generations to weed out, which is exactly what Yahweh is committed to doing. It's like, like, like cancer in the body. He will not stop until it is completely eradicated. And you guys, that is good news. He works relentlessly to forgive and heal so that we can be whole and we can be free. That's what, you got, that's what Yahweh's like. Now, this, this leads to an important question. Where does Jesus fit into this description of Yahweh? It, it like, it, is Yahweh the, the angry and intense God of the Old Testament and Jesus is like the laid-back, mellower West Coast hippie son I mean seriously like how do Yahweh and Jesus fit together well according to the scriptures the summary statement would be this Jesus is Yahweh in flesh and blood 
The New Testament writers insist that this is exactly who Jesus is. Like the writer of Hebrews opens up the letter of Hebrews by saying, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In Colossians, Paul says it this way, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then look at all this stuff that's ascribed to the sun, to Jesus. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The scholars at the Bible Project summarize it like this. Just like the Old Testament authors claimed that their various titles for God all referred to the one true God known as Yahweh, the apostles who wrote the New Testament believed that Jesus was the physical embodiment of Yahweh himself. Their conviction was that the God who revealed himself to Abraham and Moses, the God known from many titles in the Old Testament, was most perfectly revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. For them, there was no God knowable to us apart from Jesus. In him, the love and mercy and justice of Yahweh the Creator God became human so we could hear and touch him and know him by name. And you guys, this is certainly how Jesus viewed himself. In John chapter 8, there's this awesome scene. This amazing discussion between Jesus and the religious leaders who are offended by pretty much everything he says and does. And so they ask, they ask, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Okay, later in the conversation, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they're like, you're not even 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? And then he says the most absurd thing that anyone could have ever imagined. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus unequivocally claims to be Yahweh himself. And you go, well, I don't know, maybe that's people are... That's exactly how the religious leaders interpret it. Look at verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. They weren't even going to wait for a cross or anything else. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself in the crowd slipping away from the temple grounds. I mean, Jesus clearly believed that he was Yahweh, the great I am come in the flesh. So Jesus is adding color and further detail to the revelation that Moses received, who God is and what he's like. And so what is God like? Well, in John's gospel, over the coming weeks, we're going to look at these seven images or seven names, these seven descriptions that are linked to seven different signs of Jesus, right? I am the bread of life for a world that hungers for real satisfaction. I'm the light of the world for all who stumble in darkness. I am the good shepherd for all who need care and protection. 
I'm the door, an invitation to come into relationship with the Father. I'm the resurrection and the life. He's died our death and offers us his life. I am the way, the truth, and the life for all who are lost and need direction. I'm the vine, the source of the living God offered, the life source of the living God offered to, to all. This is who Yahweh is. And this is who you are to him. And I want to invite the musicians to, to make their way up. Um, but I, wanna, I just want to close by asking you guys to think about your life. Just think about your life and what's going on these days in your life. The story with Moses is really interesting because God used a burning bush to get the attention of Moses, right? And then he revealed his identity to Moses and spoke identity over Moses. And I just want to throw out there, maybe there's something going on in your life right now, and it's like your version of a burning bush in your path. God is using something to get your attention. Could be a crisis or just a miraculous coincidence or a sign of some other kind. But maybe God is, is reaching out to you personally like he did Moses. And maybe he's hoping that like Moses, you will press in and ask him his name and maybe keep pressing in to know him more and more. Because he delights to reveal himself to those who honestly seek him. Jesus used the metaphor of knocking like again and again. In Revelation, Jesus said, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The passage we looked at in Matthew. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So as we unpack the I am statements of Jesus over these next weeks, you guys, it's my hope that doors will open for all of us. And I don't know about you, but I'm desperate for that for me. Right? 